so those with egos, they didn't make it. Mm. They didn't come to my definition of success because remember, you have to not just do great work, you have to bring other people up with you. As you exactly. go through the door, you hold it open for the people behind you. Those diamonds in the rough, that you see a spark in them, that you know if you give them attention and you guide them and you give them guardrails, they're going to be the next big thing. And you're going to take those people under your wing. It's not about ego. And trust me, I have interviewed a lot of astronauts and they have all told me that the world is big enough for all of us. And there's no room for egos, but there is room to share the light and to guide other people. Welcome to the World Class Leader Show. This is the one and only podcast for ambitious and high achievers, professionals who want to become world-class leaders. In this podcast, we deconstruct the success of high-performance leaders, share their stories, and teach the most effective strategies to move from average to greatness. This is your host, Andrea Petroni, a high-performance and leadership advisor, executive coach, and keynote speaker with more than 20 years of international and executive corporate experience. So welcome back to a new episode of the World Class Leader Show. Uh, today, I have the honor to have with me uh, Dr. Ruth Gautian. Ruth is the Chief Learning Officer and Assistant Professor of Education in Anesthesiology and former Assistant Dean of Mentoring and Executive Director of the Mentoring Academy at Way Cornell Medicine. She has been hailed by the journal Nature and Columbia University as an expert in mentorship and leadership development. In 2021, she was selected as one of the 30 people worldwide to be named to the Thinkers 50 radar list, the Oscars of Management Thinking, and recently won the Thinker 50 Distinguished Achievement Radar Award, ranking her the number one emerging management thinker in the world to reach theory and practice. She is also a semi-finalist for the Forbes 50 over 50 list. In addition to publishing in academic journals, she's a contributor to Forbes and Psychology Today, where she writes about optimizing success. Her research is about the mindset and skill set of peak performers, including Nobel laureates, astronauts, and Olympic champions, which she writes about in her new book, The Success Factor. And that's what we're going to talk about. So welcome to the show, Ruth. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm excited. Yeah, me too. And uh, I was so, so, so intrigued by her book because for many of you that are listening to the show, I talk a lot about performance, motivation. So it was a no-brainer, honestly, inviting Ruth. So I really want to, to deep dive into the topic. So, but before talking about success, motivation, performance, Ruth, would you like to tell a little bit more about the audience, who you are, and what is your story? And my obsession with success. Exactly <laughs> it, right. It goes back a long way. I actually started in business. My bachelor's and master's are in business. I worked in finance and international banking for a few years. Quickly realized that just because you're good at something doesn't mean you enjoy doing it. Right. But I always loved molding young minds. And I went into academia. And I ran an incredibly competitive program called the MD-PhD program. Mm -hmm. 
and my students were getting the dual degree, both the MD and PhD simultaneously. And this program had a three and a half percent acceptance rate. I mean, wow. almost impossible. Yes. And even amongst this group, I noticed that certain people were floating to the top. But nationally, we were having a problem and globally, we were having this problem, which is very similar to the problem we're having today, which is people worked so hard for so long and trained so hard and sacrificed so much for a particular career. And then they leave that career. Mm. And it was coming to a point that we did not have enough people to fill their shoes. And everyone was talking about this problem. And what can we do about it? And how can we stop them from leaving? And I was more interested in the other end of the spectrum. Those people who were floating to the top, whose work was so incredible. I said, what if we can make more of those people? Because if we can get more of those people, they will more than make up for anybody who's leaving. So at the age of 43, while working full-time and raising my family, I went back to school. I got my doctorate. And I studied success. In fact, my doctoral dissertation is about success. Hmm. And I have been looking at Nobel Prize winners and astronauts and Olympic champions and NBA champions to figure out what has made them so successful and how the rest of us can achieve more based on the lessons we learned from these incredible exemplars. Yeah, and, and, and I love that because it's like bringing down to hurt people, yes. they are super successful because I yes. think the question everyone asks ourselves is how can we be like them, right? And we yeah. have this thought in our mind is when we see people winning and succeeding is always say, how can we duplicate their success, right? And your book is essentially you, you, you spend a lot of time, of course, in researching, you know, what these high achievers, high performance yeah. do. Sh shall we maybe start with this? So is, how you really define high achievers and people that can be successful? And, and that was the first important piece was to define it because mm. we don't have a definition of success. And what that was really the first part of my research was to define it. And what I quickly realized is that the definition changes based on who you ask. Mm. And also that success is a moving target. So you think you've gotten it, but then there's always more to do. But the definition I used for my research in order to find these extreme high achievers was that it was people who created a paradigm shift in the way we look at things, process things, think about things. They really move their field forward in some way. Mm -hmm they're recognized for that in some way. It doesn't have to be the Nobel Prize, but they are recognized as the experts. And as they're going up and improving and ascending in their career, they are bringing other people up with them. Mm. And last but not least, they are mentoring the next generation. They either do it one-on-one -on -one or they do it by developing entire programs, but they've realized that if they can share the spotlight, it doesn't dim their light. It actually makes theirs shine brighter. And I think a perfect example of that is Dr. Robert Lefkowitz. He is a Nobel Prize winner. He won the Nobel Prize in 2012 in chemistry. Now, with the Nobel Prize, it's almost never one person who gets it. It's usually up to three people. Right. And one of the people who won it with him was actually his former mentee. 
Mm. And I asked him, I said, Bob, what was that like to share the Nobel Prize with one of your former mentees? He said it was the greatest gift, the greatest gift to be able to do that. And I think that's a perfect example. A light on someone else does not dim your light. It actually makes it shine brighter. Which is a perfect lesson, actually, in leadership in, in yes. the business world, right? Where we used to think that, you know, people, successful leaders, successful people in the organization are people they are not just, you know, born like that. Of course, it's wrong. Yeah. But also there are people they... They move up the ranks on their own. They work really hard. It's been always about them. In other words, it's like the prima donna. That's why they yes. develop actually have a very high level of ego. And that ego yeah. sometimes, unfortunately, it, it comes to their way. So those with egos, they didn't make it. Mm. They didn't come to my definition of success. Because remember, you have to not just do great work. You have to bring other people up with you. As you exactly. go through the door, you hold it open for the people behind you, those diamonds in the rough that you see a spark in them, that you know if you give them attention and you guide them and you give them guardrails, they're going to be the next big thing. And you're going to take those people under your wing. It's not about ego. And trust me, I have interviewed a lot of astronauts and they have all told me that the world is big enough for all of us. And there's no room for egos, but there is room to share the light and to guide other people. And that's what makes a good leader. And I love that. The best leaders, they should really focus on empowering and helping their own people to grow, yeah. not because they have to see them as a potential competitors, because otherwise they won't never do it, right? That's right. But because if they empower them and they, you know, they increase their own level, they can increase too. They can go to another level too. You're growing with others, right? Absolutely. And frankly, it's your succession plan. Yes, exactly right. And it actually allows you to leave when you're ready to leave because yes. you know you've been grooming someone to take your spot. Very often what happens is people stay in the same position because there's no one obvious to fill in and they feel the sense of loyalty and duty and they outstay how long they should be in that role, which is a shame. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So message to the audience, don't be overprotective about your role, your title, that's right. because that's not how it works. That's not how mm -hmm. high achievers become high performers. That's right. Now, one thing that you, you spoke a lot about in, in your book, and is for me, is one of the most fascinating areas of, of leadership, because it's really about how the brain works. So the, the neuroscience elements of that. And you, may, you talk about motivation, right? So yeah. We know that the highly motivated people are those people that are performing better because they have their, they're able to unlock their own intrinsic motivation, which is one of the, the key factors that you, yeah. you founded. For those people, they struggle with motivation. So what, what has been your learning about yeah. motivation on, this, is, on those people? It's so critical because very often we think it's the extrinsic motivators that will drive people, yeah. the diplomas, Why the promotions, the awards, the rewards. That's when other people are judging you. And when other people are judging you, it's hard, that's fake and it's hard to keep that up long-term. But when it comes from within, there is nothing, nothing that can stop you. And I'll give you two examples. One of the examples is, is in the book in The Success Factor. When I was getting my doctorate, now, you know, we were older, we were working and my mentor who happened to be my professor went around the room and she asked everyone, why are you doing this? Why are you going back to school and getting your doctorate? It is so much work and it is 
it's it's just a mountain of work in addition to your regular full-time job. And then if you have families, why would you put yourself through this? It's it's brutal. And everyone went around the room giving their answers. I want a promotion. I want the recognition. I have questions that I just I'm always wrestling with. I really want to know the answer. And I remember sitting there and listening to people's responses. And I kept thinking, the ones who said promotion, recognition, bonus, you know what? Those people never finished to this day. They never finished mm-hmm. their degree. But the ones who said, I have a question I'm so curious about. I, am, I really want to know more about this. I really want to learn how to do this. Those are the people who finished, did incredible work, and mm. finished in record time. While the others to this day, years later, still never finished. Yeah, because their fuel was someone else's judgments. But when it comes from within, there's nothing anyone can do to stop you. Now, another example is all of those scientists. Now, let's say someone in your family is suffering from cancer. We all know somebody like that. It's Mm -hmm. terrible disease, terrible. And you know how difficult it is for the person who's suffering and all their friends and family. Now, imagine you were pretty good at science. You found it interesting and you don't want anyone to ever suffer the way this family member of yours Mm. is suffering. So you're going to pour your heart and soul into trying to find a treatment for cancer. Now, if your experiments don't work, if your grant doesn't get funded, if your paper gets rejected, does that mean you're going to quit? No, you can't because there's that fire within you. Yeah, the drive is there. You want to find that treatment and you know if you quit, you're not going to get closer to that goal. And you may never actually reach that goal of finding a treatment, but you know your work is going to get there, get everyone one step closer, and someone else can build on your work till eventually we will get there. That's why you can't quit. It comes from within. That's the intrinsic motivation. It is. And actually, uh, you, 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 you mentioned a very interesting example, because that is kind of example that shows as well the ability of the commitment that we can put into that when the, the, the motivation so high is yeah. way higher than any other circumstances, right? Absolutely. And it's interesting because you know, I'm a big fan of Stephen Cotter and you know, um, I think it will be at some point will be on, on the podcast too. And you know, he wrote this book about the art of impossible when he mentioned what is the motivational stack. You know, he talks about passion, the curiosity, the drive, the resilience. So given the, the research that you have done, Ruth, among the many different motivational factors, which one probably you, you have you know, noticed more frequently in high achievers? Well, it's actually you know, once you build on the intrinsic motivation, there's three additional mindsets that mm-hmm. they all had. And when I realized that the astronaut has the same ones as the Olympic champion, that's when I realized that success can be learned. These are not habits because we're different people. We cannot copy other people's habits. Wake up at 5 a.m., read eight hours a day. We can't no, it doesn't do that. work. Yeah. But we can emulate mindsets and Mm. the mindsets are tap into the intrinsic motivation. You have that work ethic, that resilience. You're not quitting. 
you can't, you're going to work harder. The way you pursue challenges is different. You don't question if you're over going to overcome the challenge. Of course you will. You focus instead on how. It's not a question of if, it's a question of how. What is the strategy I haven't thought of yet? The word yet is always at the end of a sentence. And the next thing that they all do is that they have a strong foundation and they're constantly reinforcing that. What worked for them early in their career will work for them later in their career. They always go back to the basics. They never rest on their laurels. And last but not least, you heard of all the billionaires, Mark Cuban, Warren Buffett, Bill Gates. They read for three to eight hours a day, but it's not reading that made the billionaires. It's being open to new knowledge. They are scanning for information, for two disparate ideas that they are looking to connect in some new way. But the only way to do that is to say, I don't have all the answers. I am opening my mind up to new knowledge. So Mm. what are some of the ways that we can open our mind up to new knowledge? You can read books and articles, listen to podcasts such as this one. Hopefully we're teaching some good stuff here. LinkedIn Live, LinkedIn Learning, webinars, you name it. There's something that we can learn. But we can also learn from other people. And all of the extreme high achievers surrounded themselves with mentors, with a team of mentors. And these mentors believed in them more than they believed in themselves. And if it's good enough for a Nobel Prize winner, that's good enough for me. What, what you said is very interesting. You know, the, the, the elements of, uh, of the, the sex factors for, for, uh, for motivation and as well to become a high achiever. But one thing that I always say to my clients, for example, is, is this, you know, when you stop learning, you stop winning. So for me, oh, yes. learning has to be something is going to become your motto, your, your way of doing things. It's not just something that you do when you need it. It has to be yeah. a really mindset thing, as you mentioned. Now, another element, which is quite interesting, is you didn't mention the word focus. So I've, I've been speaking with a lot of speeches, you know, sport athletes and athletes, but also, you know, talking about the flow element, right? The ability to be extremely focused in what we do. Did you notice as well focus as an important factor for success or is maybe overrated in your opinion? No, it's so critical. In fact, that goes up to that's part of the second element, that work ethic resilience. Okay. Right? All right. Part of that is actually focus. And you are right. They get into what we call in positive psychology, a state of flow. A state of flow for people who are listening is when you are working on something and time just melts away and you are not tired. You're not hungry. You're not thirsty. You don't need to go to the bathroom. You are in such deep concentration and so productive. Like you can't type fast enough, right? Yes. That's actually the time that you're also at your happiest. Mm. And they all strive for that. They strive so hard to get into that state of flow. And one of the things I talk about in the book, because what I do is I bridge theory and practice. I don't just talk about these four elements. The last third of the book is all about application, Mm. how to apply the lessons learned, these four elements of success. And one of the things we talk about is how to leverage things around you to optimize your ability to get into a state of flow. Because there are things that you can do that you might be overlooking that will help you. And we're talking about 
working during your peak cognitive hours and how to shut out those distractions. And what are these small little things that you can mm. do to help shut off that noise? And trust me, there are little things that can have huge monumental impact. impact, huge, huge. Totally. All right. So that's interesting. So now I want to challenge one element that um, I know that by the way, you cover that into the book. So I consider myself, so I'll give you my personal story very, very quickly. So I consider myself an high achiever. So for me, has been always going to the next level. Now, what I realize about myself, and I know there are many other people out there. I have some clients that are, they're facing the same challenge and they say, for me, it's never enough. So as soon as I get to one point, I want to go to the next point and be living in this status for many years until I finally realized that it was fine. It was okay accepting the good results and start celebrating more because, for example, I was someone that didn't have this behavior, this habit to celebrate my, my early wins. I was always looking for something better because I built this very high level of urgency. Yeah. You've wrote about that in your book. So how can you manage this high level of urgency, a sense of achievement? Because otherwise you will never really feel happy, you know, in what you're doing. Is that right? So this is really interesting. Whenever I interview Olympians, I always ask them, can you show me your medals at the end of our interview? Uh -huh. And one had it in a box under the bed and one had it in the nightstand drawer. And one had it in the safe and one of them had it in a brown paper bag in his sock drawer. And I said, I don't understand. He won an Olympic medal. How are you not walking around the house yeah, or going to the everywhere. supermarket, right? Yeah. I said, how is it not on display? And they said, it was never about the medal. That's a chapter in my life, not the entire story. And I found that fascinating because it, it was very clear that the metal was a goal, not the goal. There was always something after that. But that is why they are so productive. And that is why they are actually so happy, as opposed to those who get their Olympic gold medal at the age of 16. That was the goal. Now, what do you do? Mm. But if you always have something new to strive for, because we're changing as people all the time, so for example, when I wrote The Success Factor, I did, I actually was the former Surgeon General of the United States who years earlier said, I think your research is fascinating, you should write a book. And I said to him, Dr. Satcher, who would be interested in this kind of book? Years ago, he told me this. And then I did get the call and I did write the book. And my goal was to get all of my research into a coherent manner that people, you know, it's a good book that I could be proud of. Yes. My goal was not that it would make the Amazon bestseller list or that it would become an award-winning book, but it did. It did. And once you hit that goal, you're like, what's next? Now I want to get on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list, right? There's always something after. But the yeah. point is, you don't start with that big goal in mind. You start with something smaller and build and build and build and build. And that's what keeps you interested. That's what keeps you motivated. And I surround myself with people who can keep me in check. So if I'm overdoing it, which can happen a lot, I have people telling me you need to slow down. You need to slow down. 
And I have people who are cheering me on and pushing me forward and holding me accountable to my promises. And that's what every single one of the high achievers who I interviewed, they did the same thing. Because you see, I was patient zero. I tried all of this out on myself. I bet. All of these lessons before I ever wrote one single thing. And it works. And that's how I know that that success can be learned. Anybody who wants to achieve more can. Because I don't think anyone wakes up in the morning aiming to be average. I think people want to succeed. We don't know where to start. So you don't worry about the goal. You focus on the next goal. And once you've achieved that, then you say, what's my next goal? What's my new goal? Because who wants to do the same thing day in, day out for 40 years? Not high achievers. They're always looking. Now, you know how I know also this is true? If the goal was to get the Nobel Prize, they would have quit right after they got it. But I don't know of a single scientist who quit doing science after they got the Nobel. Not one. No, because no it was one. never about the prize. No, in sports is maybe slightly different than we have seen. You know, sport athletes. You know, they they quit yeah. very young in their career, but for other reasons, for mental health issues or, or other element. We should first learn how to enjoy the journey. I, st- I still believe that might generate a level of stress, but I think you built a very interesting action plan, like being surrounded by people that can support you, then keep you accountable and, you know, and, and bring you back to, to her if you are yeah. escalating things. That's right. The, the adrenaline is addicting, right? You want to get oh, more, totally. and more and more totally. and more and more. But someone will tell you, this is just not sustainable. You Absolutely have to right. take it down a notch or two so that you can do this long-term. Absolutely. And I surround myself with a lot of people who will tell me that truth, as do a lot of other people. And that's, those are the people who are able to stick it out long term. Now, even the athletes who have retired, and I interviewed NFL Hall of Famer Curtis Martin, mm-hmm. and NBA champion Zaza Pachulia and Steve Kerr, and they all had, after they retired, something else to focus on. They weren't waiting for things to happen to them. They created opportunities for them. So there was always something new to look at, something interesting. That's what it's all about. Create your opportunity. And when you build a grow mindset anyway, you're going to go into that direction anyway. So you're creating or looking for opportunities because that's who you are. And I love that. Now, if we want to translate a bit what we discuss into the business world, right? I mean, most of the things that we said anyway, they're absolutely applicable and it should be applied by leaders in the organization. But um, in your research, did you interview as well business leaders? And what did you notice in terms of similarities or differences between the known business world and the business world when it comes to success? I did. I interviewed many CEOs and uh, many C-suite people of Fortune 500 companies and Fortune 100 companies Right. because I wanted to get people from different industries. So I have the Nobel Prize winners, the astronauts, the Olympic champions, the Tony Award winners, the NFL Hall of Famers, and also the CEOs and senior government officials. And they all had these same four elements, every single one, the intrinsic motivation, the work ethic, the strong foundation, the continuous learning through informal means, every single one of them. And that's, and they all came from very, very different backgrounds. Mm -hmm. 
And that's how I knew this was the red thread that united all of them, every single one of them. That really just solidified the idea that success can be learned. That's interesting. So essentially, you you didn't notice any big difference between, you know, those kind of achievers. They're all following the same patterns, right? The same things, which is yeah. which is good because I think it gives an extra level of motivation to the business leader. Now, I have a, I have a question about teams. So I don't know whether that was a part of not of your research, but I'm very curious to understand or to know whether you notice some differences between high achievers as an individuals and high achievers as a teams, because I do a lot of work with teams. And for me, it's yep. very interesting to understand whether there are differences or similarities there too. So I, I studied individuals, but of course you can't study this without looking at teams as well. And one of the people who I think had the greatest insight on this was Steve Kerr, eight-time NBA champion, coach of the Golden State Warriors. Yeah, fantastic. Unbelievable. And he told me about the teams, which I found so fascinating, was that he always develops the bench. That is so key because every single person on the team plays a very unique role. You have the senior people who really are role models and mentors and show how it should be done and what could be. And then you have the young people who are the energy of the team. And you have the people in the middle that are the glue that keeps the team together. Mm. And you need all of them. And he said, every single person is fighting for something else on the team. You have the number one player who doesn't want to slip to number two. So they're fighting, continuously fighting for that number one spot. And the last player on the bench who's fighting to remain on the team and remain on the bench. And those two people can equally motivate the entire team. Now, what is so fascinating is that you need the culture in Mm -hmm. order to do it well. And culture is how you do business. It's the mistakes you walk by and let go. And it's the things that you celebrate. By doing these things, you show what is important. And your team is watching. They are watching what you're doing and what you're ignoring. And that helps develop the team culture and the organizational culture. Totally right. I I love that. Building an environment and a culture based on competitiveness, but competing in a good way, you know, where people that want to compete to get better, to improve results. You think that unlocking the intrinsic motivation of individual is, is the same like unlocking intrinsic motivation of a team. So in other words, is the team just a summary in your mind of individual motivation that coming all together to play, or there is something more, something different than leaders in your opinion they should do? I I think it's definitely part of it, but I think what motivates an individual may not be what motivates a team Mm. because everyone is getting something different from the team, the project, correct? the the, um, problem that they're that they're trying to solve, the challenge that they're working through. Everyone comes through it with a very different mindset, a a very different approach. And I think too often we're putting people who are the same together on teams where what you really need is different. And I don't just mean look different and I don't just mean different perspective. From an adult learning lens, you want somebody who 
knows, who sees a problem and looks for everything that can go wrong. Mm. You need that. But you also want somebody who is looking for the solutions because these are the people who are really good at brainstorming. Right. And then you want the person who can actually create a prototype. They hear what you're saying and they're able to visualize it. And then you want those people who know how to execute because, you know, a lot of people, they're good at thinking, but they are not good at executing. Totally. That's what makes a strong team. You need all of those people together. Each one is going to have a very different motivation to actually do well. But if you have all people who know how to execute, you're not going to see the problems you might be facing. But if you have people who are only looking at problems, you're never going to get anything done, anything accomplished. You're just going to talk about it. So you really need to have all of these different viewpoints and different types of people on your team if you really want to succeed. Yeah, it's building multidisciplinary teams, but it's not only yep. in terms of skills, but also in terms of competencies, attitudes, and behaviors yes, too. So it, it's really it's really that the key for building high performing team. All right, so back to to the to the book. I mean, is there any anything that I didn't ask you that is, is important in your opinion for the audience to know about your research about success? Yeah, so you know, some people they fear failing. They're mm. afraid of the repercussions and therefore they don't start. And there's some people who are afraid of success, how that might change things. Will they be seen as a fraud? Imposter syndrome might kick in. And those are the people who often self-sabotage. Mm. They'll go out partying or drinking before a big presentation. But for the high achievers, they fear not trying more than they fear failing. Now think about that. Fear not trying more than you fear failing. They understand that when you fail, that's data. You can learn from that, but not trying is not acceptable to them. And as long as nobody's dying, they want to try. That, that's brilliant. And it made me think about uh, some of the project, for example, I'm doing right now is about change because change is that. So when you yeah. want to drive positive change in organization, you have the drive of changing things, changing, challenging the status quo means I'm going to test or experiment and try new thing because what we have been doing so far doesn't work or doesn't produce a similar of, of results, right? However, you might have an organization that is not necessarily ready for that because- yeah. As you, as you just pointed out, individuals are individuals and not everyone is potentially an high achiever or has built in the mindset that might allow them to test and experiment in the same way. How do you think an high achiever should approach a situation where people, they don't want to test and experiment? So one of the people who I interviewed for the book, The Success Factor, was James Hondo Gertz. He was the former assistant secretary of the U.S. Navy. And he said to me that when people are afraid of change. It disrupts yes. the status quo. It changes the, the world order for them. But if you change 10% a year, you can barely notice 10% a year. Over five years, you've changed half the company. Yeah. So you do it little by little so people become comfortable with it. And before you know it, you've made a monumental and impactful change. 
or James Clear has, has written an amazing book about you know the atomic habits, talking about the one percent every single day and then the compound interest yes. you know that that you 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 created over time. Brilliant. So we can we can speak forever, of course. But um, Ruth, we are approaching the end of this amazing conversation. We'd like to ask you a few quite more questions, but I will stick with the last three questions asked to everyone. So, based your brilliant career, what has been maybe the major learning of that? If you look back to your career. That, you know, it's something that my father taught me early on, but it took me decades before I learned to do it. You don't ask, you don't get. You want something, you ask for it. What's the worst that'll happen? The worst yes. that'll happen is they'll say no. But if you don't ask, you don't give them the opportunity to say yes. My mother used to say the same. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and it works. And, it, and works. it works. It's a good learning. It's very important learning because I learned to do it and it's a game changing. And it's funny because another guest has answered the same way than you, which is quite interesting because it's not unusual answer. So I love yeah. that. On the other hand, is it anything that would you have maybe done differently in your career or maybe not? I would not have let other people dictate and decide what it is that I need to do. Yeah, I love that. One of the things I talk about in the book is that I told someone I want to get a doctorate. And he said, um, you don't need a doctorate for what you want to do. And I thought, you don't even know what I want to do. You never asked me. <laughs> right? <laughs> Well, it takes, you know, it, it takes courage to go back studying, you know, and, and yeah. we, most of us do actually after the 40s. So yeah, that was hard. <laughs> it was hard. But also I think you have that drive that explains that you are so. as well and a high achiever. And finally, the last question is, as you are a book author, so I'm sure that you have been reading a lot of books, but is there any book that has been really, has made a, such a huge impact on your life? I read a lot. I read 70 to 100 books a year. Wow. Um, a lot. And some that are my favorites, my latest favorites, I always rotate. <laughs> okay. Um, you remember I mentioned the Nobel Prize winner, Robert Lefkowitz? Mm -hmm. He wrote a beautiful autobiography, which is hysterical and it's vulnerable and it shows all the challenges he had to go through and how he overcame them. It's called A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to Stockholm by Robert Lefkowitz. It's wow. beautiful. The other is another autobiography called A Higher Standard by General Anne Dunwoody, first female four-star general in the United States Army. And I am now reading, finishing up The Power of Regrets by Daniel Pink. Yeah. Just yeah. read a Forbes article about it. It's great. Yeah, it's a great suggestion, by the way, and we're going to put everything into onto the show notes. And, and I had a chance to, to hear a few episodes, actually a few podcasts from Daniel Pink about his, his new book. I didn't read it yet, but it's a very interesting topic. And for sure, it is original because no one is really talking about regret in, in a way as, as he thinks yeah. and he does. Ruth, that was brilliant. So uh, where people should go if they want to find out more about your work, what you do, but of, of course about your book? Sure. So my website is ruthgotian.com, R-U-T-H-G-O-T-I-A-N. You can find all my social media there, which is just my name, links to get the book all over the world. And the name of the book is called The Success Factor. 
fantastic, Ruth. And uh, thank you so much for being in the show today. You share some amazing insights for the audience. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode. And I really hope you got some valuable insights today that you can apply them in your business. As always, I love to hear your thoughts about this episode, so what you like most, but also what else you want me to cover in the future episodes. This podcast is not about me, so I want to make sure that you get what you need in order to be more successful. Drop me an email at andrea at andreapetrone.com for that, or find me on LinkedIn and mention that you listened to this episode. I'll appreciate it. And if you want to support this show, the best way is to tell your friends and colleagues about this podcast, but also to leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. This will make our episodes more visible so we can impact more people. And finally, go to my website, www.andreapetrone.com, so you can learn more about me and my work with leaders and organizations. But more importantly, you can take the free assessment and get an instant score of your leadership level and compare your results with world-class leaders. It really takes less than 10 minutes. And by the way, on the website, you can also subscribe for our weekly newsletter where we summarize the insights of all our podcast episodes. Check there as well the previous articles. I think you've got a lot. Of All right, so thank you again for being here, and I hope to see you next time. Bye for now.